Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Uh, we'll be considering Esther chapter 2 this evening. Ex Esther chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 18. And while you are turning there, I want to ask you a question. I wonder if you have ever found yourself in a situation where it was very hard to do the right thing. Perhaps you have been surrounded by people who are all doing the wrong thing and you are pressed to follow suit, to, to swim with the current, and you have to actively take a stand to now choose to, to change direction and not to, to follow the current, but to, to do what is right. Maybe it's at your, your workplace, or uh, maybe it is at your university with your peers, where, where everyone is doing the same thing, and you know that it is wrong. Uh, maybe it's when you spend time with friends that know you from before you were saved, or from family members who, who know the old version of yourself. Can you think of a time where you found yourself in such a predicament? As Christians, it should be common that we find ourselves uh, in such circumstances as we are saved from death to life and we are part of a, a new creation. We expect that we will run into many of such situations. Well, this is a situation in which our protagonist and the namesake of our book, Esther, uh, finds herself uh, today that despite the, the real tough circumstances, moral dilemmas, and, and really being subject to, to sinful practices of the nation where she finds herself, uh, we see, and we're gonna see this evening, that despite all of this, God is sovereign, and God works according to his good purposes, his redemptive purposes. That even when we are in such a situation, God, God is still at work. And Esther is an interesting book in that God's name is not mentioned throughout the book of Esther. From the very first chapter to the last, God's not mentioned. And I think the author does this uh, very uh, purposefully because he's communicating that even in a, a distant nation where, where, where it's away from God's people, where they'd expect God to not be there, God is still present. And so although his name is not mentioned, some say he's even the real main character in the book because in all the small intricate details and all the, the miracles and the coincidences, we see his hand. Well, we're gonna pick up where we left off two weeks ago in the story of Esther and a quick recap to those who, uh, who missed it. So last uh, session, we considered our setting and we are in the Persian Empire and it's during the reign of King Ahasuerus or we know him as Xerxes. Xerxes was his Persian name. And last time we met him in the third year of his reign, in, in chapter one, it was the third year of his reign, and so he's the, the new king of Persia. And now, just in terms of the context of Israel, this was during the exile, so after, after the exile. So remember, uh, Judah and Israel were carried off. Judah was carried off by Babylon, and uh, this was God's punishment of his people for disobeying his commandments. 
And, and now under, so the Babylonians were ruling and then Persia came and took over. And Cyrus, the king at the time, he said, you can all go back to your own nations, right? And so we saw a lot of the Jews then returning uh, to Judah, but some still stayed. Right, and so this is where we find ourselves um, in the setting where there are Jews scattered throughout the Persian Empire, and this is where we're going to meet our characters. Right, and so we, we heard about um, those that are living in Susa, so this is where we set. Susa is the capital of the Persian Empire, and this is where King uh, Xerxes took up his residence. This is his holiday home, he'd go there, and this massive palace was there. All right, and, and last week we saw these extravagant banquets that, that Xerxes threw. These banquets, all these feasts, it said the wine was never running out, and so we just have this, this lavish lifestyle, and he calls upon his queen. He says, Queen Vashti, come and parade yourself before me. Queen says, no thanks, I'm good. Um, and so there was a, a big thing, and he called his wise men, and they said, you know, you must put her out of the, the, her, your presence, and really just put her to the side, and someone who was better than she must now take her royal crown. All right, so, so that's the setting. And just in terms of historical events, so while the, the chapter one was the third year of his reign, we are now going to be in the seventh year of his reign. So, so some time has passed before we, we get to the events of our chapter. And history tells us that in the interim period here, in the year 480 BC, um, King Xerxes launched Persia's great um, expedition against the Greeks which turned out to be a massive failure. Uh, this was the Battle of Thermopylae. So some of you might know it if you've watched the movie 300 with the, this is Sparta, remember that? That's this battle, right? And so that's where we are in history. And so these Spartans really, they, they sent Persia back, they sent King Xerxes back to his palace with his tail between his legs and he's licking his wounds. And so that's where, really where we are in history as well. So with that context, let's read chapter two and verses one through four. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So this, this chapter starts with the king's anger subsiding, and now that he's gotten back from this battle, he's returning to personal affairs, and you can kind of see or hear his thought process here. He gets back, he's like, Where's my wife? All oh, right, you know, she, she humiliated me and I've put her out of my presence and the plan was for me to find a replacement. Well, his, his young men are quick to his side to say, yes, you know, we have a whole plan. Uh, they have a solution to find a, a large number of young, beautiful virgins. So they immediately fill his void by finding something else to console him, to, to, to replace what he's lost. And so throughout this book, it's interesting that although this is a powerful king, the king of the biggest empire really at the time, he, he, he always asked others what to do. He was quite spineless, we're going to see, that he never made decisions for himself. While it's good to keep counsel and to, to seek counsel, saints, I want to challenge you. What, what counselors do you seek? Do you seek counselors who are going to 
encourage you in the truth? Or are you seeking counselors who are going to really tell you what you want to hear? You know, there's always the one friend that you know, if I go to him, he's going to tell me I can do that, right? That is going to egg you on. What counsel do you seek, right? The Proverbs say, in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. And the world will always counsel us to fulfill our lusts, right? To indulge our flesh. You deserve it. Listen to your heart, right? Your heart knows what, what is best. And you must just enjoy it. You only live once. Well, the Christian will tell you, walk in the spirit and do not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. But, but, but note here in verse 3, the author's emphasis is really the extreme length to which this task is proposed to be carried out. The king was to appoint officers, verse 3, in all the provinces of the kingdom to find beautiful girls, and they were all to be gathered to him. And we see, really, the author's using hyperbolic language here. In chapter 1, we're told he, he reigned over 127 provinces. It, it's interesting that the author says 127 provinces because the Persian Empire talked of, of satraps, satrapies. Uh, that was the sections. And so he was actually ruling over 26 satrapies. And so the fact that the author is using 127 provinces, he's using these smaller um, designations, is to show the grandeur, really, uh, how big this kingdom was. Okay, and we're also told of in chapter one the palace, how, how grand that was, right? The banquets, the feast, the food, the wine. And really, what we're seeing here, what's being emphasized is the king's position, his power, and the access he had as king of the Persian Empire. So now, let's look at this plan that's being concocted. Um, really, it sounds like at the first reading, it sounds like a bit of a fun beauty contest, doesn't it? A Miss Persia of sorts. All the, the beautiful ladies are going to come and parade and they're going to say world peace and all of these things, you know, as beauty contests go. That's the image we have, but that's actually wrong. Really, as we're reading this text more, we see that this is horrendously evil, what, what the king is doing here. What, what happened, like what would have happened, was that these young girls would be ripped away from their homes at a very young age with, with no consideration to any of the extenuating factors going on in their life. And they'd be trafficked across the empire to, to, this, to, this, um, to the citadel, the palace in Susa, and they'd live in this harem. A harem is a bunch of women in a place um, all belonging to the same polygamous man. And here they'd stay, and they'd be made to, to be these pretty uh, you know, girls with all sorts of cosmetics. We're going to hear about the process later on in the chapter. And really, they'd await their one night with the king. And if they weren't chosen, they couldn't return back to their families. That, that, this was their life. They'd continue there, and this was just the life of misery. They'd, they'd stay as these trophies that he'd collected over the years. In today's terms, saints, what we'd call this is sex trafficking, which is what it was. And it's important we see, we see it for really what, what is happening here. So we see still in verse 3, these girls would remain under the care of Haggai. Haggai was one of the king's eunuchs, so the king had these eunuchs. It's the whole story of its own, the eunuchs. We're not going to get too much into it today, but it's almost as tragic a story as the one we have before us, because these eunuchs, is, it would be these young boys who were castrated at a very young age, and they'd serve the whole, their whole life in the empire, never getting to see their families. They'd, they would see as second-class citizens, they were below men because they were eunuchs, and really they wouldn't have many rights. And, and so we, we see both this kind of stream of young boys and young girls just all for the king's pleasure. 
And obviously they were used then um, with the king's woman in the harems because they didn't present a threat to the king. So, so Haggai's duty would be to beautify these women until their day, and then he'd send them in to their single night with the king. And really the women who performed the best in their night would then be elevated. That's what was happening here. The, the woman with whom Xerxes was most satisfied uh, was made to be queen. Verse 4, how, how did this idea come across to the king? How did it sound? Surprise, surprise. This pleased the king. And he did so, right? He's probably, oh, excellent idea. Why didn't I think of that myself? You know, he was a man who was indulging in his lusts. And so they just told him what he wanted to hear. So he said, let's do it. Let's go ahead. And really, what, what we have here, saints, it's a man who has all the power of the world at this point and could indulge his appetite with really the best that the world had to offer. We saw it in the feasts and the wine in chapter one, but now in chapter two, we see these beautiful virgins of the land. And it's easy for us to, to spit at his feet and say, what a repulsive, vile, disgusting man. But I, I want to posit that if we had the power, and think about this, if you had the power and you had the access and the opportunity and the law was on your side, if the law was on your side. I wonder how many of us wouldn't do the same things and indulge our lusts. Without law, human depravity is unleashed and it reveals the depth of darkness to which we can descend. And in your life, think about when you have had power over someone else. How's that gone for you? How have you exercised your power? Husbands with your wives? Teachers with your students, employers, bosses, how, how do you treat your employees? Parents, how, how do you treat your, your children when you have all the power? It's so easy to, to take this power and let it get to our head and, and, and fulfill our own desires. Well, I want to take the, a moment to apply this to us saints that, that this Persian empire, it really represents the world. The empire is a perfect picture of licentious living. People who've decided, I'm going to live according to my lusts, right? Doesn't that sound familiar? The empire is indulgent. I, I want to be happy. I deserve to be happy. And I'll achieve this by having my fill of all the good things in land. It's based on beauty and extravagance and the lavish displays of, of wealth. And, and I want to challenge us, how much of the empire has won your heart? How much of your heart has been given over to, to the empire? How assimilated are your tastes to that of the empire? Do you enjoy things that the world is enjoying, that Christians should not be enjoying anymore? Well, this really is all the prelude and backdrop to our story. We still haven't met our protagonists. Let, let's meet them in verses 5 to 11. So verse 5 says, Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him 
and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young woman to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known to her people or kindred, uh, for or had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. And so amid this empire, we introduced to the first character called Mordecai, okay? And he was in Susa, the citadel, the palace, and, and later on in the chapter, we're gonna find out that he was even serving in the king's gate, okay? Often in the scriptures, when you hear gate, don't just think of the gate that we open and close at, at Heritage. The gate would be a large part of the empire where decisions were made and people would judge and you know, all the authorities would also sit. And so, so somehow he, he'd made his way uh, very high up in the king's service. And we must also think now, how, how would this be portrayed and how would this be received by the original hearer of this book of Esther, right? The original Jew, it would be a post-exilic Jew after the exile. This Jew would be uh, hearing this book of Esther. How would he be perceiving this? Let, let's think about that. So really, already, just by seeing, okay, how, how is this Jew, how has this Jew weaved his way so high up in this Persian empire, right? So imagine this, this, this Jew was sitting here next to Mario here in our, our pulpit. He'd already be raising an empire, think, uh, sorry, in, in eyebrow, thinking, how did, this, how did this Jew get so high up? On top of this, the name Mordecai doesn't mean much for us, but for this original Jew, he'd be sitting there and thinking, so Mordecai sounds like a transliteration of Marduk, which, who was a Persian god. And really, the transliteration would mean Mordecai, Marduk, it's, it's, it's a follower of Marduk. And so he's thinking, hold up, you know, at, at, first, at first he was just raising his eyebrow, but now he's also shifting in his seat. He's thinking, I don't know if I like this guy. And we also have his pedigree. Uh, we have his um, ancestry given us there. So we see he's a son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Kish, in verse 6, was carried away by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and so the next three generations were living in Persia. But you may recognize the name Kish. Right, he was. It was also the name of Saul's father, okay, and evidently a common name in the line of Benjamin. But but the, what the author is doing here is he's making a connection between Mordecai and Saul, right? Which is going to become important in, in later chapters. But for now, we, we know that King Saul didn't exactly end up in Israel's good books, did he? Right, he he didn't end well, and so hearing this, this this Jew who's raising an eyebrow and shifting in his seat, he's now scratching his head as well, right? So, so just get the sort of tension here because we can start to feel some tension building up in the story, right? And they'd be intrigued to say, what's gonna happen with this Jew in this Persian, in these Persian affairs? So then in verse seven, let's look at verse seven, we introduce to Esther, okay? Esther is her Persian name, Hadassah would be the Hebrew name. She is an orphan, her parents have passed away and she's adopted by her cousin Mordecai. And you might have a question at this point, which is worth addressing. Uh, why are some Jews still living in Persia if, if they were allowed to return to Judah? Why are they still here? 
It's a good question. Around 40 to 50,000 Jews returned to Judah. There were a number that didn't. There were a lot more Jews than that number. And so we're not really told by the author why some stayed, but you know, maybe they'd grown comfortable, maybe they'd grown complacent, maybe they'd assimilated into the culture a little bit, they'd sunk roots. You know, it's, it's, when you just get your kid into St. John's, it's very hard to now move to, to, to a different place, right? And, and so really, we're not sure and the author doesn't hint whether it's good or bad. And so it's, it's hard for us to say, but, but these Jews were in the belly of the beast, as it were. Um, and now the tension is building even more because not only that, but now we told in Esther that, that Esther had a beautiful figure and that she was lovely to look at. That's great, but we know that the king is looking for beautiful ladies, right? As now we're like, oh, we, we're getting where this is going. Sure enough, let's look at verse eight. Esther is thrust away with the rest of the women who would all end up really having the chief purpose to satisfy the king and be part of his concubinage. And so it seems at this point to be hopeless, right? We can imagine Esther uh, coming to the palace and arriving and seeing all these other girls she probably deems to be a lot more beautiful than her, hundreds if not thousands of these girls, and thinking, I don't stand a chance, right? feeling like a, like a grain of sand on the seashore. Imagine going for a, a job interview and you see people who are a lot more experienced than you. You see people who are old enough to be your dad there. You see your, your ex-lecturer from Vitz. You're like, <laughs> sure. You know, you're up against... So, so her, the stakes were very high. Well, let's see what happens in verse 9. Esther arrives at this eunuch's harem and we're told she pleases Haggai and won his favor, right? So she, he quickly provides her with the best makeup, the best skincare regime, the best food, while the others were settling for the basic food and, and cosmetics. Really, it seems like Esther was pampered with, with lavish meals. She, she had her seven colors there on the plate. You know, <laughs> Esther was treated well. Uh, she had the best makeup brands. Ladies, you'd help me. Is L'Oreal for hair? I, I don't know. But, but really, she, we think she's going to be slaughtered and we see things are actually going well for her. There's a glimmer of hope, right? She has her own servants. They're advanced to the best place in the harem. But we still have the question. She's made it through the first hurdle, but will King Xerxes accept her? And as the tension's building, the author now tells us, check there, that she hasn't made her Jewish identity known. She hasn't made her Jewish identity known. Look at verse 10, her people were kindred, for Mordecai had not commanded her, okay? Again, we're not given insight into why, or at least the motive as to why Mordecai said this, but chances are that there must have been a danger associated to being a Jew, um, might be some residual hatred or, or contempt. And so she kept quiet, she played the part, she did what she needed to do, and it doesn't say whether this is morally good or bad, uh, but certainly, at this point, this, this nervous Jew sitting next to Mario, he's a nervous wreck. He's like, you know, what, what's happening? There's so much that's going on. There's a lot of stuff that's, that's categorical sin. Um, and really, I mean, the big thing here is that we have the contrast of Daniel. Remember Daniel and his friends? They said, we're not going to eat the king's food. They said, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. We're going to pray, right? And here you have these Jews who seem to be very much similar to the rest of the Persians. 
All right, well, with all of this happening, at least Mordecai is still in her corner. You can see there in verse 11, he's checking in on her, he's keeping tabs, and really just making sure that she's doing fine. And so we're feeling quite optimistic at this point. Let's read verse 12 to 14. So when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the woman, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she'd go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and was summoned by name. Just as we are gaining hope, we see this really hard and horrible situation, the reality and gravity of it, right? That one person would make it and the rest it was hopeless. And the phrase to go into is used four times here. Look at verse 12. Uh, turn came for each woman to go into the king. Verse 13, when the young woman went into the king. 14, in the evening she would go in. Uh, at the, the last sentence there, she would not go into the king again. The, the author is using this, this phrase, which really um, carries heavy sexual overtones to show the reader what's happening here, what this is all about. Um, of the countless girls going in night by night, really the, the situation was hopeless. They were all just going there for, for the king's passions and Again, after, after the dreaded night, one person would make it, the rest would be put in what seems to be a second harem, which was run by Shashgaz, and it's like the harem of the reserves, if he ever remembers your name. Otherwise, that's just your life. And so we have this reality that strikes us. And really, what, what, what we also have here, brothers and sisters, is, is a sad picture of what happens when sin is elevated and, and given a platform to thrive, right? Like, like, a, like a disease when it's in its right um, conditions, it just, it just multiplies. And really, we see that there's consequences of sin, that there's hurt and pain, destruction to lives that, that all sin brings. Here it's on a grand scale, but even in your life, there's not a single sin that we commit that doesn't cause much hurt and pain. What's being described here seems like it's very far off, saints, but there's an industry that's thriving today on the backs of girls, very similar to the ones in this passage, who've been conscripted into a life of sex and performance. And this industry is, is funded by the countless people who click on the websites and enjoy the content in the name of it not being harmful to anyone. And much research has, has shown that Trafficking is very much involved in this industry, and the pain that, that comes, the after-effects of these so-called stars, the emotional scarring, most often leading to suicide, if not a life of remorse and, and, and depression. And really, if, if you're in this room, and this is an area that you, you're struggling with, remember the image of these crowds of beautiful young girls being extorted and used and tossed to the side, and the next time you're tempted, even if it's just to, to watch a movie that's geared in this direction, or to compromise on a show that promotes a certain agenda that the empire is pushing, remember what it is that you're participating in. 
well, the author has been playing with our emotions a little bit, hasn't he? We don't know what's really happening. Let's look how this ends in verse 15 to 18. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Well, the time has come for Esther to, to, to go in there and perform for the king. And when she's given the choice of what to take in, she, she takes her, her seems to be her now friend, Haggai's advice, and whatever he says she must take in, she, she, take, she takes that in. And we have this repeated phrase in, in verse 15 that Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. The same thing happened with the king in verse 17. She goes in the evening and he loved her more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So we have a, a Jew here for all intents and purposes, she's the Persian of all Persians. They love her, right? She's beautiful in form and appearance. She's, she has them eating out of her hand, so to speak. And the king, the king is absolutely smitten. You can imagine those cartoons where the, the jaw drops and you see the hearts instead of the eyes, right? That's the king right now. He is just completely enamored. She's, she's captured his heart. And again, the author doesn't tell us whether any of her actions are morally good or bad, right? But, but it seems, it definitely seems like she's assimilated very well into the culture of the empire. She's played the part. No one even knows she's a Jew still. And I wonder if this is you, saints. As you look at the, the empire around you, as you look at yourself in and amongst the world, do we look just like the world or do we look different? And are we using our beauty and charm? How, how are we using our beauty and charm? Right? Now, of course, Christians are supposed to be well thought of by outsiders. You're not saying that, right? We're not saying they're not. They're supposed to be well liked by your colleagues. But there are times where we should differ. There are times where we should go in the opposite direction. When everyone turns left, we say, I can't turn left. I'm going to turn right. If, if there isn't some sort of friction with us and the empire of this world, it's a point to examine. We might still be living in Persia. Well, Esther's made queen. The royal crown is, is put on her head. Uh, the king throws another feast. Of course, we saw it coming. He's like another excuse to throw a feast. This is Esther's feast now. And above this, there's a remission of taxes. There's all these gifts that the king gives out. The king has found himself a queen that's right in his own eyes. The whole empire must know about it. There's joy and celebration, right? We're going to say, yay. But, but there's some part of us that can't quite get to that joy. Right? Some part of us that not only because of the countless virgins that, that didn't make the cut, but even because, yes, yeah, she's made queen, but we remember what happened to her predecessor, Vashti, don't we? Right? And I think the author especially includes Vashti's name here in verse 17 to remind us that although she is queen, it might not be a life of sunshine and roses. 
In, con in conclusion, saints, what do we make of all of this? Uh, we, we have the story of a young woman who was uh, part of God's people, the Jews, living in this uh, Persian empire. Um, and she, she didn't choose to be enrolled in this wife hunt. She, she was thrown into it, and she knew it would result in sinful practices, but she didn't have much choice. It's tough, it is, it's a very tricky situation. The narrator doesn't give us much to work on. I think that's why commentaries also take very different stances. But really what is clear and where there's agreement is that no one, no one really is blameless in this story. There's much done that is categorical um, sin in the eyes of the original Jew who'd be hearing this. And even from the Bible, we can see that. But throughout it all, God still works behind the scenes and, and he raises up Esther to be queen. And the big question that often arises from the book of Esther is, uh, does the end justify the means? Right? Does the end justify the means? If, if there's a good end, is it okay if we use wrong means to get to the end? You often hear this, I was lying, but I was doing it to protect this person. Or I was stealing, but I was stealing to provide for my family. The end does not justify the means. We know that as Christians. It doesn't. Sin is sin, and sin leads to death. Well, the, the fact that God works all things for good and according to his glory doesn't mean that we can go ahead and sin. It really it doesn't. And Paul says this in, in Romans 6, just after he said uh, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. He then says in Romans 6 verse 1, he says, What shall we then say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Of course, we have the example of our Savior, our Lord, who, who came from the eternal riches of heaven uh, to a foreign land, to this earth, to live among sinners. He, he didn't shrink away from his identity. He boldly proclaimed who he was and why he'd come. And surely we'd think, this king, of course, he's going to win every beauty contest. Psalm 45 says in this messianic song and psalm to the king, you're the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. You have loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Surely his people will embrace this king, right? Wrong. We told in John 1, his own people did not receive him. Isaiah 53, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In John 15, 25, Jesus says himself, they hated me without a cause. Jesus was beaten and crucified. He was hung on a tree. He died the death that we deserve to die. And, and, and he, was, he was raised. On the third day, God raised him as the righteous king. Esther was made queen and given her, her feast. Saints, I can tell you that Esther's feast will pale in comparison to Christ's feast, the wedding feast, the, the wedding supper of the Lamb, the great ban banquet that we look forward to. I'm excited, are you excited for the great banquet? And the invites to this banquet are still going out, aren't they? And to, while we still have breath in our lungs, this great banquet, the invites are, are to all who will receive it. No one that comes to Christ will be cast away. Well, saints, you might find yourself in this situation uh, this evening, this week, uh, this new year, 2024, the, where you, you do feel like you're in a place where temptation is pushing you in a way and you have to stand firm. We're told there will be temptation, there will be trial, there will be sorrow in this world. But our great king has said, take heart, I have overcome the world. I've overcome the empire. 
And we ought to trust in him that whatever we are going through, we can rest on, on his finished work. And as we continue to strive to follow in his example of, of hating wickedness and loving righteousness until our, comeback, our king comes back to receive us. Amen. Let's pray. O oh, great King, O oh Christ, you who have saved us out of this empire and into your marvelous kingdom, O oh Lord, we thank you, O oh Heavenly Father, that you have not left us alone in this empire, that you have given us your own spirit, yourself, O oh Lord, to help us, help us to put to death the desires and the passions of lust that we have and to live a life that is worthy of the calling that we've received as your people. Help us to be bold about who we are as Christians and to tell many of this great banquet that's going to happen one day, to invite many, O oh Lord, that you might uh, use us, O oh Lord, to bring many into your kingdom. Thank you for this word this evening, O oh Lord. Impress it upon our hearts and help us to uh, live a life that's pleasing to you. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>